I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the 17th chapter, the first four verses. The first four verses of the 17th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. I come back once more to those uh, four verses and their uh, great message. We've been looking at it together, those who gather here regularly on two previous Sunday evenings. And uh, we've been doing so for a number of obvious reasons. The first and the most important is that uh, it does afford us such a perfect example and illustration of the way and in the manner in which this mighty Apostle Paul the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known, or I think one can safely add ever will know, uh, preached and presented the gospel. The first thing that strikes us, and I've emphasized it about his preaching, is this, that uh, he always had his message, and it was always the same message. It wasn't the message that he derived or obtained from contemporary events, he was a man who had been given a message. He'd been told what to say. He'd been given a commission. And uh, wherever he went, he preached that message. Uh, it wasn't, I say, something based on things that were happening at that time. It was rather on account of some great events that had taken place in a little land called Palestine. In other words, we can be quite certain that were the Apostle of Paul alive today and preaching, he would not be preaching about the atomic bomb. That wouldn't be his message. Nor anything else similar to that. The Apostle Paul, wherever he went, preached Jesus. And that for this good and obvious reason. Contemporary current events have their importance. It's no part of the preaching of the gospel to depreciate them or to take from their importance. And it behoves all of us to take a, a living and a lively interest in contemporary events. But my dear friends, the business of the preacher of the gospel is to talk about the most stupendous thing that's ever happened in this world. And that wasn't the explosion of the hydrogen bomb. It was the coming of the only begotten Son of God out of heaven to earth and being born as a babe in Bethlehem. And that's why Paul preached it. This is the most staggering thing. Not only that ever has happened, nothing equal to this can ever take place again. This is the most unique event of all history. And the apostle went everywhere and preached it. Preached Jesus. And we've also glanced hurriedly at the way in which he did this, which is most interesting. He reasoned, you noticed, with them out of the scriptures. There was reason, there was argument, there was logic. 
He had a case which he developed and demonstrated. That's his method. He didn't play on their feelings. He didn't simply make a number of odd statements. It was a reasoned proclamation of a message and of a truth. And uh, in particular, it consisted of an opening out of the scriptures, his Old Testament scriptures. And then, having done that, he put certain propositions to them. He alleged, he propounded certain propositions. And it's perfectly clear uh, as to uh, what they were. The essence of his proposition was that this Jesus, whom he was preaching to them, is the Christ. That is the central message. But uh, as we saw last Sunday evening, the moment he began to proclaim that this Jesus is the Christ, a problem arose. And that, of course, was this whole question of the death of this Jesus upon a cross. That appeared to the Jews to be a stumbling block of such a character that they couldn't accept it, speaking generally. And to the Greeks, speaking generally, it was unutterable folly. That was the effect of the preaching of the cross upon those people. And yet it was an essential part of the apostles' message to say that this self-same Jesus whom he was preaching had in apparent utter weakness been taken and arrested and condemned and nailed to a cross and had died and was buried in a grave. So he had to show them from the scriptures why it was necessary for him to die in that way, that the Christ must needs have suffered. It was necessary. It was an absolute necessity. And last uh, Sunday evening uh, we were considering that and demonstrating from the scriptures why it was an utter absolute necessity. But uh, you notice the uh, preaching of the apostle didn't stop at that point. And obviously it couldn't stop at that point. Because we are told here that he was opening and alleging that uh, Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Now that's the point. And that's the thing which is engaging our attention this evening. Here we are meeting together on an Easter Sunday night. What's it all mean? What's Easter Sunday? What is there special or unique about this day? Well, it is the day in which the church has always called to memory this mighty fact which Paul preached, that Jesus rose again from the dead. And you notice that he was out to demonstrate and did from these scriptures that it was as necessary for Christ to rise from the dead as it was for him to die. Now then, let us look at the apostle and watch him as he preaches this. What exactly do you think he did? What does this mean? Let's look at it in our own terms and let's, uh, let's analyze it. What, what precisely did the apostle do here and wherever else he went? Well, the first thing we can say is this. He preached and proclaimed to them the fact of the resurrection the fact of the resurrection, the historicity. What do I mean by this? Well, let me put it like this. We are told that the first great theme of apostolic preaching was Jesus and the resurrection. Not only this preacher Paul 
The Apostle Peter did exactly the same thing. You go back and read the second chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles, and there you will find that men, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches, in a sense, the first sermon under the auspices of the Christian Church, and this is what he was talking about. Or take, if you like, that great sermon preached by the Apostle Paul in Antioch of Pisidia. It's the same thing. Wherever they went and whoever they were, these men went and they preached Jesus and the resurrection. What's it mean? Well, it means primarily, I say, that they just stated facts. Sure, brute, hard facts. That is the thing that uh, characterized and uh, typified uh, this preaching. As I've said already, they preached Jesus. They uh, went round and they first and foremost uh, recited a number of events which had taken place in that land of Palestine. They, in a sense, uh, preached what you've got in the pages of these four Gospels. They told the people uh, about the birth of a baby in a stable in Bethlehem, and how his name was Jesus. And uh, they probably told the people something about the character of his birth, the strange things that had taken place, how his mother was a virgin, had never known a man, that she'd been visited by an angel, unexpectedly, to her own surprise, would give her the information that she, a virgin, without knowing a man, without being married, was going to give birth to a child. The angel had told her that the Holy Ghost was going to come upon her and overpower her and that she was going to conceive a child of the Holy Ghost. She couldn't believe it. She staggered at it. She said, how can these things be? To which the answer was, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And then it happened. She found herself with child. And the men to whom she was betrothed didn't understand it at first and didn't like it. And an angel appeared to him and explained it to him. And then uh, they went on to tell the story of how they had to go up to Bethlehem because of a census. When they got there, all the hotels were full up. And mankind then was the same as mankind now. Nobody was going to turn out of a room, even for a woman in this condition. There was no room for them in the inn. So they were shown into a stable, and the baby was born in the stable and put into the manger. All these facts were preached. These are facts. These things have happened. This isn't a fairy tale. It's not a cunningly devised fable. These are the very things that this apostle preached and all the other apostles. This baby was called Jesus because the angel had said that his name was to be Jesus. And then they went on to say how he was brought up as a boy in Nazareth. And how he lived this apparently ordinary life for a number of years. They may have said about that incident when they took him up to Jerusalem at the age of twelve. And what he did there, how he was able to confound the doctors of the law with his extraordinary knowledge. But then he goes back again to Nazareth and for eighteen years we know nothing at all about him. Except that he lived and worked as a carpenter. We just know nothing at all about it. He lived for eighteen years like that until he reached the age of thirty. And then 
he set out upon his public ministry. There was a crowded three years. He went out and he began to preach. People couldn't understand him. He went and asked John the Baptist to baptize him. And John said, but it's nonsense. You ought to be baptizing me, not I, you. No, no, he said, you baptize me, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And John said that as they were there in the water that the Holy Ghost descended in the form of a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven saying, this is my well-beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are just facts. These are the things that they talked about. And then they went on to say how he went up and down that land preaching in a way that men had never heard before. Everybody who heard him said, never men spake like this men. There was an authority. He didn't preach like the Pharisees and scribes. There was a new note of authority. He seemed to understand all things were clear as he enunciated them. And not only that, he performed miracles. He could heal the lepers, he could give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, he even raised the dead. He could walk on the sea, command the elements, there was nothing he couldn't do. They reported all this. But then they had to go on to say that enemies gathered against him. The priests and others became jealous of him and they began to plot and to scheme to get rid of him. And eventually they did arrest him. And they condemned him. There was no true charge, but they condemned him. They trumped up a case. And they condemned him. And he was taken, as I've said, in apparent utter weakness. And there he was nailed to a tree and he died. There was no question about it. He did die. And all his followers were crestfallen. The body was taken down and buried in a grave. A stone was rolled under the face of the grave. And a seal put upon it and soldiers put in charge. And there the whole thing seemed to have ended. But, on the morning of the third day, his followers going to visit the grave found that the stone had been rolled away and they looked in and they found that the grave was empty but for the grave clothes. He wasn't there. The body had gone. And there was great excitement and they couldn't understand it. And then this same Jesus began to appear to different people. So first to a woman, and then to others. Then he came to all the disciples. And do you remember what Paul wrote there in reminding the Corinthians of what he preached to them when he'd first gone to them? How Christ had appeared for 40 days to various selected people, and sometimes to 500 altogether, many of whom were still alive, but some of them were dead. This tremendous thing, that he literally had come out of that grave in the body, it wasn't the same body, obviously, because now uh, when the disciples were met together in an upper room with the doors and everything shut because they were afraid of the Jews, suddenly he stood in the midst of them and the door hadn't opened. And they thought that this was a spirit, a ghost. But he sat down and he ate some broiled fish and a honeycomb and said, you know, I'm not a ghost, I'm giving you proof of it. This is resurrection. His body had been transformed and had been glorified and he appeared amongst them. Now that's the fact. And he went on appearing for the 40 days and then he told them to meet him in a certain spot on a mountain. And there he spoke to them and gave them certain messages and injunctions. And while they were yet speaking to him, he was raised up to heaven and went up out of their sight. And they there stood amazed looking up into heaven. Now that's the thing that the apostle preached. That's what all these apostles preached. The fact of the resurrection.
all these truths about this person but culminating in this stupendous thing that here is someone who has passed through death and come out the other side to believe that the spirit of Jesus is still in existence in heaven that isn't to preach the resurrection what these men said I say again and it can never be repeated too frequently is this that in that body which was changed he came out of the grave the body was no longer there and he spoke and he appeared and he ate with them and revealed and manifested himself to them and again worked miracles now that is the first thing therefore that the apostle preached to these people in Thessalonica and you see it is obviously the most amazing thing that a man has ever said but the apostle didn't stop it that he went on in the second place to say why all this was necessary and I mean by all this tonight the resurrection we dealt with the death last Sunday evening he argued here opened and alleged that the Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead it was necessary that he should do so why well let me suggest some answers to that question the first answer I must give again is that it was necessary because uh, it was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament you see Paul was always saying the same thing and any man who preaches the gospel must in a sense always be saying the same thing take that passage in the 15th of 1st Corinthians uh, he preached first of all unto them what well that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures and here it is according to the scriptures it was necessary why well because these prophecies in the Old Testament had said that he was going to do so I haven't the time or the leisure to take you through them all again this evening but as those Old Testament types and shadows had foretold his death upon the cross so they had also foretold his resurrection you work them out they're all there not only that you've got specific explicit statements to that effect in the prophecies that he would not only die but rise again it's there it was predicted it was prophesied and if he is truly the Messiah the one who really has come to, to do the work that the Old Testament prophecies say that he's going to do well he must fulfill it completely and he's done so think not that I am come he says to destroy the law of the prophets I am come not to destroy but to fulfill and he's done so we have in him a word of prophecy made more sure says the apostle Peter all that has been prophesied concerning him he hath so fulfilled so it was necessary for that reason it is a part of the authentication of him and of his message let's never lose sight of that in my friends the Old Testament is of tremendous importance for Christians Christian people who see no value in the Old Testament are just displaying their ignorance you remember don't you how the Apostle Peter in his second epistle puts it as strongly as this he says don't merely take my word for it I was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and I saw the change in his very physical appearance and I even heard the voice from heaven with my two colleagues believe me says Peter but don't stop with me I've got something much more sure than that for you it's this word of prophecy that's been fulfilled so go through your Old Testament make a note of these things see how he's fulfilled them all there's nothing more strengthening to faith than that 
So that's one reason. Another reason why he needs must have risen again was this, that he said himself he was going to do so. Several times he turned to these disciples of his and he told them that he would be taken by the hands of cruel men and be put to death. But always he added that he'd rise again the third day. They never seemed to grasp it, did they? They were always crestfallen when he told them about his death. Peter once even upbraided him and said, Far be this from thee, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And he had to rebuke him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. But he'd always said that he was going to rise. They asked him, some of his enemies asked him on one occasion, If you say that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, give us a sign. And his reply was this, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign. He says, There shall no sign be given unto it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three nights in the belly of the whale, so the son of men, he gave them the sign, he referred them to a prophet. So you see, he's claimed in every way that this was going to happen. As if to say, now my whole case depends upon this, that after I am crucified and buried, I will rise again, destroy this tabernacle, and in three days I will restore it. That's it. And so on. So it was absolutely necessary for him to rise again from the dead uh, to verify his own word and his own prophecies and his own predictions. He substantiates his own case. He must needs rise again from the dead. And he did. And of course all this leads to this next point which I put in this form. You know the ultimate proof of his Godhead is the resurrection. Do you remember how this Apostle Paul put that in writing his epistle to the Romans? He says that uh, Jesus Christ, the one whom he's preaching, he puts it in these words, let me give you his exact words, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's the final proof. You read the four Gospels and keep your eye on these disciples, these followers of his. You think at some times that they've grasped the truth about him and yet the next moment they seem to deny it. The very Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, stumbles the next moment at the crucifixion, as I've just reminded you. They, they, they didn't understand. And when he died, they were utterly disconsolate. And they said, you remember those two on the way to Emmaus? We thought that it was he that was going to restore the kingdom to us, but he's gone and everything's finished. They didn't understand, they didn't really grasp that this selfsame Jesus was none other than the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, but the resurrection established it and proved it. How does it do so? Well, he is the first who has risen from the dead. What happened to Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain and the daughter of Jairus was not resurrection, it was reanimation. He is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn among many brethren who are to follow, but he is the first. Never before. Let anyone pass through death and through Hades and come back 
but he's done it. It's unique. It stands alone. It's as unique as his birth. His resurrection from the dead is as unique as his virgin birth. It's the only case that ever happened. It's alone, and it proclaims that he is no ordinary person. He could not be held by death because he is the Son of God. He burst asunder the bends of death and rose triumphant o'er the grave. He couldn't be held by it. He is indeed God, the Son. And the resurrection is the final proof, I say, of the fact that Jesus is not only the Christ, but he is God, the eternal Son, very God of very God. But wait a minute. It was necessary, therefore, you see, that he should rise again from the dead in order to establish that. And that is why there would never have been a Christian church if the resurrection wasn't a fact. It was this that convinced his own apostles. It was this that gave them the assurance that he was indeed, as he had claimed, to be the Son of God, the one who could say, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and so on. This claim that he and God were one, no man knoweth the Father save the Son, and no man knoweth the Son save the Father, and so on. All that is verified here, they saw it, that he is indeed God. Oh, there's one perfect illustration and example of this, isn't there? The poor men whom we call Doubting Thomas. When he was told about it, he couldn't believe it. But you remember when he saw him, and the Lord said, Come along, Thomas, you don't believe. And you say that until you can put your finger into the marks of the nails and into my side, you won't believe. Come and do it. Thomas fell down and said, My Lord and my God. God risen? It's proved it to him. It is the proof of it. And it had to take place. Because there'd be no gospel to preach. There'd be no message. If Jesus of Nazareth is not the only begotten Son of God, the resurrection coming out of the grave in the body proves it. But let me go on. There were other reasons why it was necessary for him to rise. Here's another. And what a glorious one it is. His rising again from the dead was the absolute final proof of the fact that his sacrifice was enough and sufficient. And that he had satisfied every demand of God's law and of God himself. The apostle again in writing to the Romans in the fourth chapter in the 25th verse puts it like this. Referring to Jesus Christ he says who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. You see what he means is this. The preaching is, as we saw last Sunday night, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this world in order to deal with the problem of our sins. No man could do it. Nothing else could do it. The law was never intended to do it and didn't do it. It couldn't. The law was weak because of our flesh. Here is the problem. How can a man get rid of his sins? Yea, more, how can God forgive sins and yet remain the just God that he is? That's the problem, says Paul. And the answer is that the Son of God has come into the world to do it. And that he has come and has offered himself, and God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
God hath made him to be sin for us that knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. With his stripes we are healed. In other words, the preaching was of these men that God had taken your sins and mine and had put them on Christ and had punished them there, that he'd borne all the consequences of our sins. And that is why he died on the cross. Ah, yes, but the question is, does that do it? Is that enough? Does that really deal with my guilt and with the problem of my sin? Does that really put me right with the law? Does that really satisfy the demands of this just and holy and righteous God? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is a proclamation that it's enough. That every demand has been answered and satisfied everywhere. Oh, let me put this to you again in the language of Paul as he develops the argument in the 8th chapter of his epistle to the Romans. Listen to him. This is how he puts it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God the justifier. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. You notice that, yea, rather? If the story had ended with the death of Christ upon the cross and his burial in the grave, there'd be no gospel, there'd be no message. We would have to say, well, the problem of sin is so great that even the Son of God can't deal with it. It even finished him. It killed him. It brought him down to death and to the grave and to hell. And we are left where we were. Even the Son of God can't do it. But that isn't the position, my friends. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. There is no condemnation in the light of this. That is why there is no one who can bring a charge of condemnation against us. The resurrection of Christ prohibits it. It was necessary for that reason. And when, Christ, when God brought his son again from the dead, he was just saying this, that everything had been done. Oh, the son himself knew that on the cross when he ended by saying it is finished. He knew he'd done everything. And he knew he was coming through, and he came. But God has given a public declaration of this in the resurrection. The law of God is absolutely satisfied, for he has lived it in his life. He rendered it perfect obedience. He didn't fail in any respect at all. He honored God's law in his perfect positive life of obedience. And then he met all the demands of the law with respect to the guilt and the punishment of your sin and mine. He bore it all. The law is silenced. It can't speak. He has taken the ordinances that were against us and he's nailed them to the cross. The law is put aside as regards believers in Christ for he has satisfied it in total from beginning to end. It can't say a word against us. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. None at all. Yea, but more than that, God himself is satisfied. Not only God's law, but the just and holy God himself. 
righteousness and truth have met together. Mercy and peace have embraced each other. God's holiness and justice and righteousness and his eternal love and grace and mercy are all satisfied. There is harmony in heaven. Yea, if I may use and borrow the language of the epistle to the Hebrews, the heavenly places have been purified by the blood of Jesus. So his resurrection, you see, was absolutely necessary in this respect. It is on the basis of this alone that I can proclaim tonight that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, they're blotted out. That God has dealt with your sins in his Son and has put them away, has cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness and you can be pardoned and forgiven and reconciled to God and become a child of God. It's the resurrection that enables me to preach that with absolute assurance and certainty. And lastly, it was necessary that he should rise again from the dead in order to prove not only that he'd satisfied the demands of God and the law, but in order also to prove that he had conquered every single enemy that is set against us, every one of them. You know these enemies, don't you? Sin is an enemy of men. The devil is the enemy of men. The law, in a sense, is the enemy of men. And death is the last enemy of man. Ever there in the background threatening us, sometimes coming near and knocking at our door, and we think he's come, and then he goes away. But we remember it, and we shiver as we think of it. Enemy of man, this last enemy, he keeps men trembling, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, who through all their lifetime are subject to bondage because of this fear of death. There it is, the last enemy. And the Redeemer that my soul desires is one who can conquer my every enemy, and he's done it. He's conquered them all. Sin, temptation, the devil in mortal combat, yes, the law, and the last enemy, death. He's conquered him. He's taken the sting out. He rose triumphant or the grave. And therefore it was necessary, I say, that he should rise again for this reason, that I, as a little believer, in all my weakness here in the flesh, may know this, that I belong to one who has conquered them all, and who's going to make me conquer them all, and will take me through them all. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, nor all things below nor above, can make him his purpose forgo or sever my soul from his love. As a believer in Christ, I can smile at them all. I know that he's put the devil and his cohorts to an open shame upon the cross. He's triumphed over them in it. They thought they finished him. He proves by the resurrection that it's they were finished. The prince of this world has been cast out. I no longer fear him. I can resist him steadfast in the faith. 
Though he is as a roaring lion, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. He has conquered them all. And what is death? The last enemy. Yes, but now this is what Paul says about him. Death means this, to be with Christ, which is far better. Death has lost its terror for the Christian. It's gain. Positive gain. Going to be with him, entering into the glory. That's death to the Christian. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But Christ has dealt with all this. Read the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15 again. Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory, even over death already. And you should no longer feel any terror with respect to it. You won't if you're a true Christian. And if you really understand what he's done, he's conquered them every one. There's nothing left. It's triumph all along the line. Well, very well then, my friends, let me say just a word about my last point, my third general principle. Which is this? What is the meaning of all this? What's the message of all this to us? Shall I try to gather it up in a practical application? The first inevitable deduction from all this is this, that this selfsame Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ. He's the only Savior. One God and only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself his life. A ransom. He's the only Savior. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's the only name. There's no second. He needs no assistance. He alone is the Savior, and he's enough. His death and his resurrection, I say, prove that. My friends, I am preaching to you just this, that God so loved the world that he sent, he gave, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying this, that it is an event in history, an actual fact, that this blessed second person in the Holy Trinity has literally been in this world, in the flesh, in exactly the same way as you and I are in the flesh at this moment. And there's only one meaning to a thing like that. He came and did all he did. Because there was no other way whereby men and women could be saved. It's inconceivable that he would have come if there had been another way. If giving a man law, if giving men moral advice, if giving men a good example, if these things would have done it, he needn't have come. Why did this thing take place? Why the incarnation? Why the death and the suffering and the agony? Why the resurrection? Why all of it? Why he? There's only one answer. This is the only way for men to know God. 
and to be reconciled to him, to have his sins forgiven. There is no other way. That's what it means. That's why Paul preached it. And that's why I'm trying to preach it. Atom bombs and hydrogen bombs don't matter in this context. Whether there be a hydrogen bomb let loose or not, you've got to die and so have I. And you may die at any moment. That's the position. These things don't matter. This is the vital fact. That you and I, as the result of sin and as the result of the fall, are in such a predicament that nothing but the coming and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God can save us. But it's happened. It has taken place. And God offers us salvation and deliverance in it. Let me hurry to the second thing, which is this. He is not only the Savior and the only Savior, he is the King. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you go on reading the 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, you will find that certain people disliked this preaching very much. And uh, they went and they made a complaint against him and they said, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, uh, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And you know, the enemies were perfectly right in what they said. Paul was proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is the King of kings, and that he is indeed the Lord of lords. He says it everywhere. He says that because of his death upon the cross and his humbling, that God hath highly exalted him, that all things are in his hands. He said it himself after the resurrection. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He is the Lord of history. Everything is in his hands and in his control. He shall put down all rule and all authority and power. He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. And he's going to do it. As the Lord, he is the Lord of history and of the world, and everything is in his hands. Not only that, he is the judge. Paul, going later to Athens, said that quite plainly. He says, In the times of this ignorance God hath winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection is a proclamation of the last judgment. The fact that Christ rose from the dead is a proclamation to you and to me this night to this effect that every one of us will likewise be raised and will stand before him. Death is not the end. We shall all rise, every one of us. And we shall stand before this Jesus. Judgment has been committed unto him. He is now the judge, and what determines our fate is our relationship to him. God has handed it over to him. 
The whole condition of men and of the world has been handed to this Christ. And what will decide your eternal fate and mine is our relationship to Jesus Christ. If I don't believe in him, if I don't believe this message about him, there is only one fate for me. The wrath of God will abide upon me and I will spend my eternity in misery and in endless useless remorse. But if I believe in him and this message concerning him, I can know here and now that I have passed from judgment into life. I know my sins forgiven. I know God is my Father. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of the judgment. I'm not afraid of hell. In Christ, I am redeemed. And the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That's the meaning of the resurrection. That's the message of the resurrection. You're either a believer in Christ and safe in him, or else you're lost. And without hope in time or in eternity, my dear friends, Shall I ask the obvious inevitable question as I close? Can't you see that nothing matters therefore except your relationship to him? He maketh the wilderness standing water and the dry ground springs of water. Just turn to him, cry out unto him. And he will answer and reveal to you the full provision, even in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then you will be ready and glad and eager to receive the invitation of the psalmist who says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his, his wonderful works to the children of men. Yes, the most wonderful work of all, the strange work upon the cross. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.